You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, February 14th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. After serving in the U.S. Senate longer than any other Californian, 89-year-old Dianne Feinstein announces she will not run for re-election. In a Valentine's Day vocal village, KVMR's Julia Jem looks into the many faces of Nevada County love. The California Report focuses on extremism up and down the state, while Mark Cuniberti delivers a bouquet of scary conspiracies about your financial future. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A new bill introduced in the state Senate looks to help stop the rise in anti-Asian attacks in public spaces. CAP Radio's race and equity reporter Sarah Mises Tan has more. The bill would require the state's 10 largest public transit systems to collect survey data on ridership safety and street harassment. The bill was introduced by Irvine Senator Dave Min. It's part of a larger campaign to address the recent rise in hate crimes and incidents. Min says the bill is a first step to document what's happening to be able to create safer public spaces for vulnerable populations. This is a bill that is meant to address the growing and pernicious problem of harassment in public transit. And obviously, as an Asian American who hears a lot from Asian Americans around the state, uh, a big part of this focus is around trying to stop AAPI hate. Cynthia Che, co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate, says since 2021, the organization has recorded over 11,000 incidents. Of this number, about 10 percent have occurred on public transit. In order to create effective solutions, we really need to understand the experiences of people who are impacted by street harassment. And essentially, that's what this bill does. It it gives transit riders a voice. If signed into law, data could start being collected next year. For the California Report, I'm Sarah Mises-Tan in Sacramento. Anti-Semitism and hate crimes are on the rise in the United States. In California, some far-right groups are becoming more extreme. I-News Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano tells us about one of those extremist groups and the effect it's had on San Diego. San Diego has been forced to face anti-Semitism head on. In 2019, a man shot four people at a synagogue in Poway, a San Diego suburb, which spread fear across the Jewish community. Since then, the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the area has continued to climb. That includes acts of vandalism, harassment, and assault. A far-right extremist group connected to San Diego is fueling incidents like these. It's called the Goyim Defense League. Over the past years, the Goyim Defense League has been active in San Diego. That's Fabian Perlov, the San Diego regional director of the Anti-Defamation League. She says the Goyim Defense League is a small network of white supremacists with dozens of supporters and thousands of online followers. You know, they've been spreading anti-Semitic myths and and conspiracy theories. They say that Jews are responsible for 9-11 and the COVID pandemic. They also hold racist and homophobic views. The group has monthly propaganda campaigns where it distributes flyers and displays signs with hateful messages. There were more than 100 of these events across the country last year. San Diego has been home to one of the group's most prominent figures, a Canadian immigrant named Robert Wilson. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? 
Wilson provokes members of the public with hateful language and posts footage of the incidents on social media. Last year, Wilson and another member of the Goyam Defense League paraded around San Diego in a van covered with anti-Semitic messages, using a megaphone to shout at people on the street. They did it again in Beverly Hills a few months later. Look at this Jewish trying to stop free speech! The Anti-Defamation League says even though the hateful activities might be protected as free speech, it's important to report them to the authorities because they can escalate. We know that words matter. And the hateful rhetoric breeds more hateful rhetoric, especially online, and, and, and it can incite real-life violence. In late 2021, Wilson allegedly attacked his next-door neighbor while yelling homophobic slurs. He was charged with a hate crime and is facing up to three years in prison. Shortly after the incident, Wilson spoke to CBS 8 reporter David Gottfriedson outside the courthouse. Are you in a feud with your neighbor? Uh, no. You didn't uh, yell homophobic slurs at your neighbor? There's no such thing as homophobia. But Wilson didn't stick around to face the charges. Last summer, he fled the country to Poland, where he continues to spread hate. Wilson went to the Auschwitz Memorial and held up an anti-Semitic sign with John Minadio, the Goyam Defense League's founder who's from the Bay Area. Minadio was arrested. In November, Wilson recorded a video of himself confronting U.S. military officers in Poland and using a racial slur. Show us what a tough guy you are. You got an AR-15? The San Diego County District Attorney's Office wouldn't say if it will extradite Wilson. The Anti-Defamation League says he's not a threat to San Diegans anymore. Uh, honestly, we don't miss him in San Diego. San Diego County is home to more than 100,000 Jewish people and 400 Holocaust survivors. The county's Board of Supervisors recently declared January 24th Holocaust Remembrance Day and agreed to build a commemorative exhibit in the county. Board member Nathan Fletcher said the exhibit is deeply needed. When we see hate speech and white supremacy, nationalism and anti-Semitism, like we are seeing growing across our communities and society, when we see these things, we're reminded of the work that remains to hold true to our promise in the aftermath of the Holocaust, the promise of never again. For the California Report, I'm Jill Castellano in San Diego. That story was produced in partnership with iNewsource, a nonprofit news organization in San Diego. It's part of an ongoing project in collaboration with the California Newsroom to chronicle the scope of extremism in California. Support for the California Report comes from Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com slash CA. Guideline, the California way to 401k. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. It is going to be a very memorable Valentine's Day for one person, but because of money, not romance. Later this morning, the California Lottery will reveal who won last November's record-breaking $2 billion Powerball jackpot. It's being reported that the winner is not expected to attend the press conference or give interviews to the media. The winning ticket was purchased at a gas station in the city of Altadena, just east of Los Angeles. And a tweet from the lottery indicates that the ticket was bought by a single individual and not a group. 
the owner of the service station, has already received a million dollars for selling the lucky ticket. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, February 14th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening, and happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Topping the regional news, California Senator Dianne Feinstein announced today that she would not seek re-election to the U.S. Senate after serving for more than 30 years. The Democrat intends to serve out her current term, which ends January 3, 2025. In a statement about her decision published in today's Sacramento Bee, Feinstein said, I am announcing today I will not run for re-election in 2024, but intend to accomplish as much for California as I can through the end of next year when my term ends. Feinstein turns 90 on June 22nd, and her retirement announcement was not a surprise. In recent years, she has exhibited memory problems and has been discouraged or stepped away from taking leading roles in the Senate. Her 2024 campaign committee reported having on hand a little less than $10,000. Even as she has faced questions about her ability to represent the 40 million residents of California, Feinstein has refused to publicly acknowledge the problems. Feinstein's decision will end a political saga that began in 1969 when she was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. She was the first woman to serve as mayor of San Francisco, the first woman from California to serve in the Senate, the first woman to chair the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Senate Rules Committee, and the first to be the Senate Judiciary Committee's top Democrat. Feinstein vaulted into the national spotlight in 1978 after the assassinations of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk. She went on to win two terms as mayor. In 1992, the state elected her to the U.S. Senate, where she has served longer than any other Californian. Two prominent Congress members, Adam Schiff of Los Angeles and Katie Porter of Orange County, already have announced they would run for her seat. Representative Barbara Lee of Oakland is expected to join them. Turning to your regional forecast from the National Weather Service, A weak system is bringing light mountain snow and periods of gusty northerly winds to our region through tonight. Nighttime temperatures will dip to nearly to slightly below freezing. In Nevada City and Grass Valley, this evening will be clear with a low around 27 and northeast winds gusting up to 21 miles per hour. Wednesday, expect sunny, clear weather with a high near 52 and northeast wind up to 11 miles per hour. Wednesday night, winds will subside and we'll have a low of around 28. Truckee and Lake Tahoe will see isolated snow showers before 10 tonight with a low around 4 degrees and northwest wind gusts as high as 30 miles per hour. Wednesday in Tahoe, expect sunny skies with a high near 30 and northeast winds of up to 10 miles per hour. Wednesday night will be mostly clear with calmer winds and a low around 7 degrees. Tonight in Sacramento and Woodland will be clear with a low around 34 and north-northwest winds gusting up to 24 miles per hour. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 58 and wind gusts as high as 22 miles per hour. Overnight Wednesday, expect early morning frost, then increasing clouds, light winds, and a low around 33. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR.
That mythological god of romance, Cupid, apparently carries many different kinds of arrows in that quiver of his. In the Valentine's Day edition of Vocal Village, the questions posed by KVMR's Julia Jim capture some diverse styles of attraction. Listen in. Some of the comments might surprise you. It's Valentine's Day, and whether you love it or hate it, Nevada County is alive with an air of romance. When I drove past a grocery store parking lot this morning, I witnessed flocks of last-minute lovers carrying bouquets of flowers to their cars, and almost every conversation I've overheard around town has had some correlation with the day's festivities. In an effort to capture the way that this holiday seems to have engulfed our community, I visited several places throughout Grass Valley, Penn Valley, and Nevada City, and I asked a number of people the same question. Can you describe your first love? First, we have this response from Scott at Gateway Park in Penn Valley. Well, it was my mom. Yeah. I really appreciated her and her sacrifice for me and that she nurtured me and made me the man I am. Next, we have these three anonymous voices from downtown Grass Valley. I think I'd have to say it would be my parents because they're the first ones who loved me. And (laughs) they gave you everything you needed to learn how to love. So I think... I think it'd have to be your parents, my parents at least. I would say probably my puppy dog, my German Shepherd. There's something about the joy when you walk in the door and that just complete, uninhibited, just like welcome to see you no matter what, like jump on you love. It's just a great, it's just great. It fills my heart with such warmth. For, you know, Valentine's Day, I guess my first love would be my boyfriend. Um, yeah, he's pretty amazing, so. And how did you guys meet? We met at the fair, actually, the Nevada County Fair. We met um, in the beer garden, <laughs> um, and he ended up working for a local uh, window washing company, and I've worked downtown, so we ended up reconnecting that way, and so, yeah, and we've been together for going on five years, so. Awesome. Yeah. And now a response from Jessica near Ridge Road in Grass Valley, followed by an anonymous voice from downtown Nevada City. My first love was my daughter. Um, When I had her, I wasn't attached at pregnancy, but as soon as she came out and laid on my chest, that's when I knew she was my first love. And when was she born? She was born February 23rd, 2006. Do you think that your love for her exceeds any romantic affections that you've had in your life? No. No? Just different types? Yeah. (laughs) Who was your first romantic love? Can you describe them? Brandon Garvey. <laughs> That's my husband. And how, how would you describe him? Um, tall with blue eyes. Sweetest guy you can ever meet. Um, well, that would probably be my dad. Yeah, I was really close with my dad. He, he died in the Vietnam War when I was 11. But he was my first love. And what was his name? Peter. I also visited Cascade Living in Grass Valley and spoke with Alice, a resident, about her first love, her husband Richard. So you want to know about my first love? It was my man that I married. And who was that? Richard. And where did you meet? Where did we meet? It was interesting. My sister was driving my car and I was sitting in the back seat because her girlfriend was up with her. And there was this cute guy coming across the street with a gas can. And he came over to our car, my car, because he knew my sister. And um, 
we got introduced. He stuck his head in the window, and I thought I'd faint. He was so cute. So anyway, they worked together. So when he went to work with her the next day, he asked all about me, and she said, well, she wanted to see you, so called me up. And, and did you guys, when did you have your first date? Right away. Right away? Where did you go? I don't remember. We were married 62 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a long time <laughs> to remember. Do you have, did you it have didn't children? matter. We were together, and that's all yeah. that mattered. Did you have children together? Oh, yes. What, which children? What are their names? Deborah, Susan, and Lisa. Three girls and my precious husband, my forever man, the love of my life. What would you look like? Oh, my gosh, he was so cute. Big dimples, big dimples, and big blue eyes, and blonde hair with curly, curly blonde hair. He was very handsome. Where was he from? Southern Cal. That's where we met. And what year did you two get married? Hmm. I don't remember. We were married 62 years, mm -hmm. so long time ago. And what was the wedding like? We went away. We eloped. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. Where did you elope? We just took off and got <laughs> married. <laughs> How long had you known each other before you got married? Mm, probably about a year. But I didn't want a big wedding type of thing, and he didn't either, so we just took off and got married. And Still. What, did, what did you do for work? Well, I, I took care of them. <laughs> that was plenty enough work. <laughs> and what did he do? He worked for the City of Lakewood Water Department, and that was just across the street from our house, through our neighbor's backyard, open a gate, and he was at work. Wow. It was perfect. You couldn't see the water department from our house, but it was there. And how long did he do that for? His whole life. As long as we were married, he had worked for the water department. And where are your kids now? What are they doing? Uh, I have one in Colorado. That's our eldest, Deborah. And she's married and very happy. And then Susie and Lisa, our twins, live up here. And they're married and happy, too. That's great. <laughs> Everyone's happy. That's right. Happy Valentine's Day. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jim. Can you spell dystopian? as in dystopian economic nightmare? Mark Cunaberti spells it C-B-D-C. That stands for Central Bank Digital Currency. In today's Money Matters commentary, Mark explores some conspiracy theories about what could become of you and your money should the government convert to a digital version of the dollar to make its global payments. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Digital currencies were all the rage a few years back, Bitcoin being the most well-known. The number of cybercoins has exploded to over 9,000 to date. Cybercoins have not gone unnoticed by the governments of the world, the U.S. being no exception. When and if cybercoins ever took off, you can bet it was only a matter of time before Washington wanted in, and that time has arrived. 
The idea of a currency in cyberspace has its good points and bad points for governments. Being in cyberspace and accessible anywhere and everywhere, there is a computer terminal. The government can't control it nor issue it. Not issuing it means they can't print it and cannot spend it, therefore, which basically could eventually handcuff their deficit spending. And for a country that finances a portion of their programs and expenses by deficit spending, it would be an untenable situation. Enter the CBDC, known as the Central Bank Digital Currency, a newsletter I read, jokingly called them Biden Bucks, unfairly squaring off on the president. Biden did not originate the idea, nor is at fault or credit for its arrival. In fact, its idea has been in the government's crosshairs for years since cybercoins made their arrival. The difference between cybercoin and the CBDC is that the government version is a credit from the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States. This month, an updated government white paper called Exploring a U.S. CBDC, of which originally came out in 2020, was released. This is one of 114 CBDC studies the government has previously undertaken. One could say they are moving along on a digital government currency quite nicely. Another name for the CBDC is Alternative Payment System. The word alternative to me spells replacement and frankly scares the hell out of me. Quoting the government paper, one paragraph in particular tells the story. It is imperative that the U.S. government consider ways to maintain the use of the dollar in digital global payment systems and develop a strategy related to that use. Pay particular attention to the first sentence, maintaining the use of the dollar. The conspiracy theorists suggest we substitute the word controlling for maintaining and you get imperative ways to control the use of the dollar. We have been told the master plan in a nutshell. Unlike a dollar, coin, cyber coin, check, credit card, or other form of payment which is autonomous from the government's immediate control or scrutiny, except under legal warrant, the CBDC would be directly, immediately, and forever in control of the U.S. government. Ponder that for a moment. Its ramifications are more than frightening. Let's journey into the weeds, shall we? With your money in control by the government, say the wrong thing and you could be locked out of your bank account. Protest against the wrong policy and you could find yourself without the ability to buy anything. Suddenly and without warning, your e-wallet won't work and you can't buy anything and you're given an 800 number to call. Please hold your caller number 6005. Support the wrong candidate or the opponent of an incumbent? Your e-wallet with your CBDC access is locked. You can't buy food for your family. Get an erroneous past-due tax statement from the IRS? Your e-wallet with your CBDC access is locked. You can't pay the power bill and your heat is shut off. Try to get gas and find out your registration is overdue or you've used too much gas this week? Guess what? You can't buy gas and you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere at night on a country road. Or worse, think it can't happen to you where a government shuts off your cast because you don't see things the way they do? It already has. The government of Canada froze the bank accounts of truckers who participated in peaceful public protests over border crossing rights during COVID. I think you get the picture. The CBDC, the central bank digital currency, should scare the hell out of you.
That's it for today's Money Matters. I'm watching the market so you don't have to. This newscast expresses my opinion only and does not necessarily reflect the opinion of any bank, registered investment advisor, nor this media outlet, its staff members, or underwriters. I hold a BA in economics with honors, 1979, and California insurance license OL34249, and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name is Mark Cunaberti. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, February 14th. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weeknight at 6. If you missed any of our newscasts or interviews, you can listen at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Wednesday for the next edition of the KVMR Evening News.